Witchlit is on a summer hiatus while we settle into our new Witchlit HQ. And rather than leave a blank space in the feed, we're taking the old TV network approach and bringing you some summer reruns from our first two seasons. Today's re-release is my conversation with Lana Harper. We talked about her New York Times bestselling Thistle Grove series on the original episode. The first book, Payback's a Witch, has been followed by From Bad to Cursed, Back in a Spell, and the forthcoming In Charm's Way, out in August 2023. It was a delight to talk queer witchy romance with Lana. If you haven't picked up the Thistle Grove series, I highly recommend you add it to your to-be-read pile and spend some time in the enchanted small town she has created. Welcome to Witchlit, a podcast where we talk about the craft of writing and writing the craft. I'm your host, Victoria Rashke, fiction author, witch, and nosy Scorpio. Lana Harper is the New York Times bestselling author of Paybacks a Witch and the forthcoming From Bad to Cursed from Berkeley Books. Writing is Lana Popovich. She is also the author of YA novels Wicked Like a Wildfire, Fierce Like a Firestorm, Blood Countess, and Poison Priestess. Lana studied psychology and literature at Yale University, law at Boston University, and is a graduate of the Emerson College Publishing and Writing Master's Program. She was born in Serbia and lived in Bulgaria, Hungary, and Romania before moving to the United States, where she now lives in Chicago with her family. Lana Harper, welcome to Witchlet. Hey, Victoria. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Yeah, I'm excited that we were able to get you on, and um, I thoroughly enjoyed your book, so I'm really looking forward to talking about that. Thank you. Great. So our first question, because we're a writing podcast, is why write? Why write? Um, I feel like I never considered a different option. <laughs> like <laughs> I've been writing since I was really little, so I remember writing these uh super, super adorable slash ridiculous books when I was like seven or eight. Um, and I would put them together into like pamphlets and then try to sell them to people. They were like, I don't want to buy your weird illustrated book, A Random Child in Bulgaria. So I've been writing for a long time and I've been reading voraciously for a long time. Um, and then I took a break kind of where I was thinking, you know, I'm going to go be a lawyer. Law school is the path. That's what's going to happen. Um, and then it became abundantly clear that I hated it and it was not what I wanted to do with my life. So I actually, the first novel that, um, that I wrote, I drafted in my last year of law school. And it was like a wonderful refuge because I had become very aware that that wasn't the path that I wanted to take. Um, and then it was shelved for a number of years when I went on to, um, get my publishing and writing master's degree at Emerson and then resurrected after I became a literary agent. So I feel like in one way or another, I've always been writing and that's always been, you know, whether it was academic or whether it was fiction or for pleasure, it's something that I've always felt a compulsion to do, which doesn't mean that, um, that it's easy because sometimes it's not, sometimes it is just tooth pullingly hard, but I've always felt happier and better and more, um, at ease with myself when I was writing. So I think in, at least in a personal sense, I write because I feel like I have to, to be happy. I'm not sure if that's true for a lot of people, but it does feel to me like a vocation. Yeah, I do think that, I think that is true. I mean, most of the people I've talked to, most of the writers I know feel like they 
really started very young and it was always just kind of part of who they were. There is also that weird, like English major to law school pipeline too. This is a real thing. Definitely. (laughs) Definitely. is. I don't know why it happens. And it's funny because I think those are not really the skills that you need as a lawyer. You probably should be taking different classes, like something more logical and and like less meandering because I didn't feel like any of my literature or English classes really helped in any way once I was in law school. Uh, But it's, it's for sure. That's, that's a trajectory that happens often. Yeah. So I, you mentioned that you also became a literary agent. So what did finally getting published look like? So you had this novel that you drafted in law school mm-hmm. that you've been taking with you through this journey. So how did that finally become a book for you? It did not become a book. Uh, that first one did not become a book. It was a sapphic vampire uh, contemporary fantasy. And I got my agent with it, but she was also a really close friend from Emerson who at the time was uh, was starting out on her agenting career as well. So she was like, you know, I'd really love to represent you. Um, and I was like, that would be amazing because I hadn't really thought we were going to do anything with this book. And so we went out with it pretty widely and um, it did not sell. It did not mm-hmm. sell at all. And there was a lot of requests for revise and resubmit. Um, and there was in some ways significant pushback to the fact that it was a queer um, story in that field at the time, which it just wasn't quite the moment for it. Mm-hmm. And then um we just shelved it and I kind of went back to the drawing board and by then I was representing quite a bit of young adult myself and so it seemed like an organic kind of next step to do a YA project and so um, that was when I wrote Wicked Like a Wildfire which was called Hibiscus Daughter at the time so we went out with that I think in 2014 um, Mm -hmm. and then we sold it in 2015 and that was my first book that actually sold so Covenant got got put in a drawer forever and is never coming back out. Be your juvenilia in your papers. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Like that doesn't need to see the light of day. I loved it. There's still parts of it that I really enjoy, but yeah, it was, it was very much a, a debut or just a first time effort. Um, and I feel like I've gotten much more confident and I'm a very mm-hmm. different writer now. So it deserves to stay in the drawer. Yeah, those, those practice books are not a bad thing. That's yeah. sure. I, I have one of those locked up in a drawer too. So I feel you on that. Um, so you write pretty much full-time now or do you still represent other folks? No, I don't represent. Um, I stopped agenting in 2018. Um, mm-hmm. I just felt like I was getting spread too thin and I wanted to see what I could do if I wrote full-time. So um, I switched over to writing just my own fiction and then also uh, screenwriting for Pixelberry Studios who um, produce one of those choose your own adventure apps that you mm-hmm. might have seen. There's yeah. choices, which I really love actually. Choices is super fun and they have a lot of different genres. So I wrote two different books for them. Um, hopefully I'll be doing another project for them this year. I took a little bit of a break in the meantime, um, but I had been writing um, both my own works and then work for hire for publishers as well. So my second two books, which were the Lady Slayers series, Blood Countess and Poison Priestess, those were work for hire. So they were IP originated by Abrams. Mm-hmm. They were looking for a writer. I auditioned and got those projects. Um, and then in the meantime, I did that uh, as well as uh, focusing on my own work, which was a thriller, and then eventually also payback. Yeah. So what was it like writing for IP? I would imagine that's very different. 
It is different, um, but it's also really satisfying. I enjoyed it. Uh, I had never previously written to uh, uh, any kind of outline. Mm -hmm. Like I had sort of a, like a thoughts document that I would use at a time, but I very rarely had like a clear beat by beat of the plot. Um, and it was, I found it really helpful. So it taught me a lot in terms of how, mm -hmm. um, how much more confident I would feel if I organized some of the story in advance. And I'm still partially a pantser. I can't really, you know, I can't lay it out to the kind of degree that a lot of other authors use. Like, you know, they have like 10 page outlines. I don't do that. But it taught me kind of the shape of a story, the beats that you really need, how to organize something into acts. So in that sense, it was really satisfying. And I felt like it was a great experience for me and like my development as a writer. No, that, that makes sense. I, yeah, I, I feel you on the, um, I, I like the term discovery writer a little better than pantser. That's that. great. That's, that is better, <laughs> but it's Although, still scary. Like, I yeah, don't know what I'm going to really discover. Scary. Will it be good? <laughs> and I am somewhere in the middle. Like you said, I kind of, I plan out like the arc of the story. Same. It's not like a, a beat, like you said, it's, there's not a beat to be outlined just because I wouldn't follow it anyway. I do all that work and then I go do something else. So yeah, just, I don't know if I even could. I just, my brain doesn't work that way. I don't know what's going to happen next precisely. Mm -hmm. Like even when I do, I have what I call like the signal fire scenes where I know they have to happen. Mm -hmm. um, but there's like seven or eight of those. And I'm like, what happens in between? I don't know. Like we're going to find out. So <laughs> I've gotten better at outlining, but it's still nowhere near. I, I would still call myself, I would like a, at least a fifth, like a 45% discovery writer at this point. Um, well, you just never know like what those characters are going to do once yeah. on the page is how I feel like, like I'm getting to know them too a little bit. So, so you went from writing YA to writing this new series that starts with Payback's a Witch. So what was the impetus to, to kind of switch from why, why, oh, writing YA to writing for adults? I had always felt like YA was a little bit of an uneasy fit for me. Um, I started writing it because I felt like I knew the terrain since I was representing um, a number of YA writers at the time, but it just wasn't, it wasn't the best fit. It wasn't the, the themes and the coming of age and the conflicts weren't really what I wanted to be talking about. And so I was consistently getting the feedback where it was like, well, this reads very adult um, and it's longer and wordier and generally denser than why is meant to be. And I found it to be a little bit more restrictive than what I wanted to be talking about. So um, my, what I was planning on doing next after the Lady Slayers books was an adult thriller. Um, and I had that finished and my agent and I were editing it. And then she just happened to have been in New York, like back when like agents did meetings in person. This was definitely pre-pandemic era. And she was like, you know, I keep hearing uh, rom-com editors tell me that they really want magical rom-coms. Like they want like a witchy rom-com. And I know that you've wanted to get into that space. So what do you think about doing something like that? And I was like, that sounds awesome. It would be so fun. It's like a natural segue from YA, but I don't have like a clear idea of, of what exactly I would write in that space. And so she and I brainstormed for like a couple of weeks and she would just send me like one line ideas. And one of them was literally John Tucker must die, except everyone is witches and two of the ladies fall in love with each other. And I was like, that's it. That's the one. It's the one I want. And then I kind of spun it out from there, developed the idea of a magical town and 
four families and a, and a gauntlet, like a magical tournament. But it was just that kind of organic progression from I knew I wanted to, to be in the adult space, but I still wanted it to have that speculative feel. I still wanted it to feel fresh and young in some ways. So um, it was like, it felt very much like the natural next step. Well, I, I mean, it seems like reading the first book, like just the world building, like clearly a lot of work went into this because there's, there's so many aspects like the lore and the families. And I know it's just such a rich tapestry to kind of walk into. So Thank you. like, it, it almost seems like one of those where you kind of hear people talk about, oh yes, this character came to me with this fully born idea. So it's nice yeah. to know that that can happen and it not look like <laughs> yeah. that. Yeah. Well, it's sort of, um, it did a little bit in the sense that um, as much as that like initial nugget was not mine, um, a lot of the rest of it when I was building it out before I started writing, it, this is so cheesy and I have never said this about any of my <laughs> other books, but it felt, it felt like I was discovering something that existed instead of inventing it because it was so easy and it felt mm -hmm. so effortless and fun. Like there wasn't, it didn't feel like labor. It just felt like I was coming back to this place that brought me joy consistently and one thing led to another and a lot of it was very much like lucid dreaming like the constellation of what what did the four families look like what kind of powers do they have what is their ancestry how did they come to be in this town what are their dynamics it just felt easy and discoverable rather than inventable which mm -hmm. is a weird feeling and I had never had it before so I, I loved it it was especially great because I was writing a lot of it like mid-pandemic um, and I was planning a move to Chicago and I was very stressed out I had a really young baby who had had cardiac issues when he was born and he's fine he's lovely and healthy now but it was just such a stressful fraught time so to have this thing be so joyful and wonderful was like it was really just a gift um, yeah. And I have never felt that way with any of my other books. So I'm very lucky to have had that experience. Um, and even the sequel, like, or rather the next installment was that similar kind of happy. So there's something about these books that just like really does it for me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that sweet spot of like, wow, this is, it's work, but it's really fun. Yeah, I, I am doing a lot more reading with starting the podcast. And like, you know, a lot of it's nonfiction because I talked to a lot of nonfiction authors. And some of those will keep me up, but like I lost some sleep reading your book. Cause I was like, yeah, I got to find out what happens next. Cause it was just like you said, it's, it's a really lovely place to be like the people just feel very real and the place feels very real. So it was just a, a lovely experience. And when you and I kind of chatted back and forth on email to set up the thing, we had talked about like this, like zeitgeist moment around mm -hmm. witches in fiction and like just witches in pop culture and in general, and it's interesting to know that that was, you know, also happening in New York pre-pandemic times, they were having these conversations, but so what do you think is the, like the, what, why is this wave what it is? Why are we in this like pop culture, witch boom, do you think? Uh, I mean, partly, I think it's because social media facilitates um, these kinds of moments so well. Um, and then social consciousness in general seems to be shifting in kind of the direction of self-empowerment and manifestation. And then you have um, the convergence of things like the Me Too movement and just generally women trying to stand in their power or reclaim their power in certain ways. And the witch archetype can really be that, I think, for a lot mm -hmm. of people where it's a certain kind of, of power that is sometimes perceived as dangerous and ugly, but is really like the strongest that you can imagine yourself to be, but it can also be, I think part of it is like 
now that we have Instagram and TikTok and all of that, it can also be beautiful. Like you have these mm -hmm. lovely witchy aesthetics. And so it's like power community because you're finding other people and discovering that you have these similar interests and you're, you're feeling aligned with them. And then almost at the same time, it can feel like a form of self-care because like a lot of the things that you see is like, oh, here's a spell or like, here's a way to celebrate one of the wheel of the year holidays feel very indulgent and very like self-focused in a way that can seem wonderful. So I think a lot of it, it depends also on the practitioner because a lot of um, witches, I say, prioritize their connection with the land and kind of where they are. But I, I think that that's person specific and the kind of broader appeals are probably um, just reflections of what many of us are, are hungry for, women mm -hmm. specifically and especially in Trump's America and post-Trump. So it was just a moment where it was like all of us really wanted this kind of strength and this was a ready way to look for it enabled by social media. Mm -hmm. My theory. I'm not really no, sure where it no, came No, I mean, I, I think I, I agree with you. And partly too, I think the other layer of it is, you know, like you, you, you kind of mentioned me too and like politics and all that. And I think when things are rough and obviously have been politically with the pandemic, with, you know, climate crisis, all this stuff, it's also, like you said, a way to reclaim some power in that yeah. situation that a lot of other kind of more mainstream belief systems don't give you in the same way. A hundred percent. That's definitely yeah. must be part of it. Mm -hmm. And it's so individual, like it, it really is. It's not like one size fits all. You can tailor it infinitely. Mm -hmm. And that's really, I think, wonderful because it's not, it's not restrictive. Obviously, if you're doing something very formal, like joining a coven, then you have rules and you have certain practices, but otherwise you really, you really have a lot of freedom in, in how you can express, you know, your devotion or, or the way that you approach the craft. So I think that's probably appealing to a lot of people too, and how flexible it is. Yeah. And I feel like your book, I mean, it is rom-com and it is lovely and all that, but I feel like it hits on two really important things. <laughs> like it hits on, on obviously in this kind of empowerment and taking that back with the main character, like that's her arc in so many ways, mm. but also like just how, um, how important witchcraft and the occult and paganism is in the queer community. Mm -hmm. too. Like there, there's, that seems to also be an overlap and that's definitely part of the book. So I, I, I feel like you just kind of hit the right, <laughs> you just hit the right place yeah, at the right time. Sexual witches. Yeah. It was the sweet spot. I mean, it really, um, I very much wanted it, whatever the rom-com was going to be. I, I wanted it to be a bisexual romance. Like that was mm -hmm. always going to happen. Um, and the fact that it was witches, which is funny because uh, a long time ago, I was writing a bisexual witch character and an editor told me that that was a cliche. And I was like, really? <laughs> I I didn't know that. I had no idea that there was something about this, like that is somehow a stereotype, like witches are bi. Okay. Um, but it does, I think that there is an overlap, like there mm -hmm. is a certain alignment there. Um, and there are awesome ways that kind of the craft fits into representation of queer communities and just generally social justice. I think it's, uh, it tends more in that direction when it's being, mm -hmm. when it's being like leveraged for a useful purpose. Cause I've definitely seen some strange conspiracy theories that also, um, like there are, there are for sure practitioners who are more towards the right than I would expect, but I think that's more rare. That's rarer than, mm -hmm. than 
seeing the sort of more inclusive, um, diverse, and to me, much more valuable version of embracing the occult and, and the craft and all of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah. Um, so and also, sorry, I didn't go ahead. No, no, no. I, the, the, the other thing that I always like to mention um, with regard to that story is I really wanted to create the kind of bisexual romance that was going to be non angsty, like the kind of obstacles they have have nothing to do with coming out to do with them being attracted to, you know, both of them are women. And that's not the point of the story. No one's like hung up on that. Mm-hmm. I wanted it to feel in some ways like a happy place romance mm-hmm. <laughs> for queer readers where they weren't going to have to deal with um, any of the kind of more fraught stuff that comes with that because all of the all of the Emmy and Talia issues really boil down to human stuff like the stuff that any couple might face mm-hmm. as opposed to very specific queer coming out stories. So that was important to me because I had a very hard time finding books like that when I was looking for them. And I really wanted this to be one of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that is one of the things that stood out to me about the book too. Like it is, there's literally no discussion amongst the people around them about it. It just is, it just is a thing, which is lovely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I appreciate that so much. And we talked a little bit before, and I guess I said, I had listened to another interview with you. So I know that you are a practitioner or practitioner adjacent at the moment, perhaps, but how did your own like views of your witchcraft or the witchcraft you've practiced or been involved with? How did that inform how you wanted the magic to look like in the book? Cause I mean, obviously fictional magic is, is bigger magic, you know, yeah. it is, it is um, a special effects budget where like, exactly. you know, practicing witches is not so much like that. So how did your actual practice inform what you wanted the magic in the book to look like? I would say it's exactly what you, what you just described very little. So what I, what I did want to, um, to highlight were things like the wheel of the year holidays, kind of the more common, um, pagan practices, tarot, divination, but clearly this is very flashy magic. Like it's just not the kind of magic practitioners see. Um, And I wanted it to be that way. I wanted it to to feel accessible and dramatic um, and not kind of the deeper, maybe even darker. Like my, my experience with what I would term magic is definitely not as sparkly as what I see in the book. And I wanted it to, to death, to not be off-putting. Like Mm -hmm. I've written other witch books in which magic was more complex, more nuanced, more sinister in some ways. And to be fair, the Abramovs practiced necromancy, right? So like, it's not all sunshine and and rainbows, like for sure they have, there's a darker element to this little grove magic as well. But my experience with it has been more subtle and and darker and I think in some ways more interesting but maybe not um what I wanted for this kind of book so if anything I was like hey don't do that (laughs) (laughs) go the other way because typically typically in my witch books I'm like oh we're gonna have a TED talk like we're gonna have rules a really elaborate magical system we're gonna know exactly how this works like sometimes there'll be pages of exposition about like how does this spell happen and I didn't want that to bog people down like I wanted there to to be clear rules but I wanted them to be easily graspable without like too much effort expended there so that the Mm -hmm. story fell you know to the back to the um to the side while people were like well how does this work like that wasn't really the point so I think um the best the the most the clearest way that my practice informed it is just that I think it's valuable 
and it's important and it's a very attractive, um, compelling element to someone's life. So Emmy's kind of missing her magic and missing that community is something that I've certainly felt in my life. And so I wanted that kind of sense of yearning to come across and that's probably where it plays in the strongest. Yeah. I like too that one of the things you set up in the book is that magic is not a currency per se, but there is like a class issue mm-hmm. in the book around who has what kind of power. And I thought that was handled really deftly, but I mean, was that kind of something you wanted to talk about going into the book or did that just kind of evolve out of what was going on with the families? It really, um, I wanted to have that set up uh, just because for sort of most communities that tends to happen. There are very few incredibly egalitarian communities and often the question of power is what drives a lot of the tension in in many stories, magical or not. So I came into it knowing that the families wouldn't be equal. Um, I didn't necessarily think that Emmys would be such on the kind of lowest rung of the magical ladder, but then at the same time, once I had the idea of why don't we give them pretty serious power disparities. Um, it led to different revelations and kind of the later twists um, and things that we discover as as the plot moves on. So mm-hmm. it was partially intended and partially it was just because, you know, it's a gauntlet, they're competing. But the idea that there's one family who has such a leg up is very true to what I've seen in the world. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yes. why, you know, why wouldn't that be the case? Even in a magical town, like someone's, someone's going to have that starting advantage. And how does everyone else deal with it? How does that impact kind of the dynamics of all of the families, even when they're all witches? I thought it would be interesting to explore that as kind of a microcosm of how things happen in our world. Yes. Oh, that makes sense. Um, so we, we know there's a second book coming already. Yeah. Folks can pre-order from mm-hmm. bad to cursed. Um, so how, like, once you build this family, like how did you just, all these families really, how did you decide like who your next, I guess, couple would be, or like, do you have several books played out in the yeah. series or kind of like, <laughs> how is that, how is writing a series looking for you? I guess is really the question. Um, So I, for the second book, I knew I wanted it to be from an Avramov point of view because they're not so secretly my favorites. Like you're not supposed to play favorites, but they're my favorite. Uh, I just lie about it when people ask me and I say, no, I don't have one, but I do. And it's them. They were my favorite too. (laughs) (laughs) Like you guys are the sexiest and the weirdest. Like I wouldn't be one. That's the sad part. Like I totally wouldn't be one, but aspirationally speaking, they're, they're the family I would want to be part of. So um, I knew I wanted it to be them. And that's why I had a moment of like, oh, and it would be cool if it was Talia's sister. What would be the greatest conflict and the greatest drama? Obviously set her up with a thorn because those two, they're uh, polar opposites. They're almost, they're not exactly enemies, but they have a very complicated feuding family history. So like, let's create this very tense, fraught situation in which they're both personally arch enemies and then also kind of... uh, opposed to each other based on uh, their families at large. Uh, so I knew that I wanted that to be the setup for the next book. Um, and then for the third book, I was like, well, it's got to be a Blackmore. And I thought it was going to be difficult to write because the Blackmores are um, 
relatively speaking, much more unlikable than the other families. But then I got into it and I loved it. And at this point, it might be my favorite of the three books. So that mm -hmm. one is actually finished. Um, the first draft was just handed in. So I can't say anything more about it, but um, it will come out, I believe, at the end of the year. So okay. all, all three will be done before the year is out. Nice. And from Bad to Cursed, when does that come out? That comes out on May 17th. So we're actually quite close. Yeah, not that far off. Yeah, and there's lots of like fun social media stuff uh, is going to start happening. There's a Goodreads giveaway happening now. And then there's going to be a signed pre-order with Anderson's Bookshop and probably like a sweepstakes of some sort. Um, awesome. Um, so is this is this a trio of books or do you think it will go on beyond the third book? Uh, I would feel comfortable if it was just the trilogy, but I, mm -hmm. at the same time, I think there's a lot more stories in Thistle Grove yeah. um, and I would be equally happy to continue telling them for a while. So I'm not um, sure of the details on that, um, mm -hmm. but, you know, I would be, I would be happy to move on to something else, but I would also be really thrilled to keep writing in that space. Yeah. It's such, I mean, it's, it's a difficult thing to walk, I think sometimes, because there, there definitely is something to having like something complete and wrapped up and mm -hmm. you know in a, a trilogy or even four or five books and then and then you know there's also those people who are on like book 50 exactly like, I don't know how you do that <laughs> I think you just keep sinking deeper and deeper into the world mm -hmm. um and it helps if it's not sequels exactly yeah like in in this case you know um it does the from bad to curse does happen after the events of the first book but you don't necessarily have to have read the first book. Actually, right. you definitely don't have to have read it to enjoy it. So they are, you know, standalones in that sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Also, I think easier to like the romance series because they're usually a new couple. Mm -hmm. Like, I feel like that's a little easier work to have them be standalone than if you are really following this like long arc of one character, a couple characters mm -hmm. through several books. So exactly. that makes sense. And probably easier to get to book 50 than for talking about the same people. <laughs> I, know, I, I actually always think of Jim Butcher when it comes to these like long stay, even though there's many mm -hmm. more people who are even more prolific than he is, but I'm just yeah. like, wow, like you keep, and I love all of them. Yeah. So it's clearly very possible to continue achieving character development and fascinating new aspects of the world. Even if the world is just Chicago. Like, mm -hmm. that's not that big of a world relatively speaking so I yeah it's it's possible for sure but it's it's no easy feat so I don't know um, that I can sustain 50 books but perhaps yeah well and I think like like you said with Jim Butcher one of the interesting things and I think a lot about the books the series that continue to go and continue to be good you know like at this that, that they're performing at the same level like the writer is performing at the same level and they're selling at the same level tend to be ones that have a way to be naturally episodic like his are kind of based around a case so I think you know in that way they're easier to do but yeah if you just have like you know a witch in the world like I don't know how you do that for 50, 50 books. <laughs> it'd be nice to figure that I guess to crack that thing but it's difficult so you have written for YA you've been a literary agent you've written for adults you have been a New York Times bestseller so what, like, what are your goals from here? Like with the series or with your writing in general? I would like to really sustain <laughs> the 
this level because it's taken a lot of time and effort to get here where I feel comfortable in saying, okay, this is a real career now. I can fully support myself with it. And I'm very proud of myself for having gotten here. And I never would have made it without um, my parents' support and just a very, very strong network of people kind of pushing me here. Um, I, the New York Times bestseller list was a tremendous dream for me. I wanted that so badly, but really didn't think it was going to happen, um, mm -hmm. especially for a queer book. Payback was actually the first Berkeley queer book to hit the list. So it was really massive for my editor and me and the whole team. It's one of the three times in my life that I've ugly cried and uh, <laughs> cried, actually not just ugly cried, but happy cried. <laughs> like It was just such a huge moment. So really, if I can just keep building from there um and it's hard that's the thing is like oh well payback had a new york times review as well in the romance column and it hit the list those are the dreams if i could mm -hmm. if i could repeat any of those things for the next book that's what i would ultimately want um of course there's always like the fun possibility of tv and film adaptations um and we do have something in the works, fingers crossed, hopefully, you know, you can never really count on that piece of things, but yeah. um, there is, there is um, interest and movement there. And that would be amazing. Like, that's really the coolest thing that, that I can imagine, because of course, what, how, how could it not be? Yeah. So if I can just sustain kind of the momentum that we have, and then also throw something, you know, wildly awesome like that into the mix, I would be very happy. Well, and I feel like that, I mean, especially for books that have been have done so well like that optioning piece seems a lot more possible in a world where like mm -hmm. everybody is making visual content yeah like there's just so many possible like I've been watching discovery of witches like half the people in the world and um, mm -hmm. you know just thinking about um like as a writer like what it would look like to have your world translated that way and you know the good things and the bad things and you know, obviously Deborah Harkness has had a lot of control because she's the executive yeah. producer, but, yeah. you know, still, I and mean, they made changes that I think, you know, made it a, a better visual story mm -hmm. that worked. So that's, that is pretty exciting to think about. I will keep my fingers crossed for you me too. <laughs> and for me, because I think I would enjoy watching that. <laughs> so, well, and I mean, that would be exciting to get like a romance series that leads with a queer couple. Yeah. Like, that would be, be super exciting. So yeah. I would love it so much. So um, I'm trying to art of detachment, gently wished for it in yes. a very furious way because yeah. <laughs> like, it really it would be such a dream. Uh, so speaking of, you know, like those possibilities. So what do you see as your relationship with your readers and what do you hope they take away from your stories, like specifically with this book or your work yeah. in general? With this book, I specifically hope that they find it an escapist read and that it makes them happy. Like I wanted this book to be that kind of comfort, bright light read that someone's excited to get to, that they makes them feel good. Like after a long day, um, and especially queer readers, I get a lot of messages from bisexual couples, especially who are like thrilled because it's so rarely is a relationship that you, you see portrayed, um, particularly without angst. So I just want it, I want it to be a happy escape and I want people to feel like Thistle Grove is for them. They can experience being there. They can imagine living there. Um, and it's somewhere that they want to revisit um, as a place of like, not just excitement, but also comfort. So really more than any of my other books, um, I hope that this is a, a happy book for readers. 
Yeah. I think you, I think you achieved that. I mean, based on my experience as reader, I think you, you achieved that. Like I said, it was just a lovely place to visit. And, um, and even like you said, the darker elements of the, you know, the Abramoff's magic, there's still, it's still dealt with in a way that kind of feels really lovely around those topics of ancestors and death and spirits. And like, it is darker magic than the other parts of the book, but it's still presented in this very beautiful way. I'm really glad. So, no, I think, I think you, I think you, I think you did it. So thank you. Yeah. Um, so we talked a little bit about upcoming projects, um, but where, like, like if people want to reach out and like follow you on social media or connect with you, like what's the best way for people to do that? Um, I am mostly on Instagram. So that is the best way to reach mm-hmm. out to me. I'm at Lana Light on Instagram, L-A-N-A-L-Y-T-E. I try to be really diligent about answering um, DMs um, and featuring stories and doing all that. I really love connecting with readers there, especially because it's such a visual medium, which I really enjoy. Mm-hmm. So um, I always try to encourage people to reach out and you know expect a response from me if, if I can at all pull one off. And then um, I'm also on Twitter, but not, not very much. Um, I don't engage nearly as much there um, as I do on Instagram. And then I'm also always reachable with my contact form on my, my website, which is lanapopovicbooks.com. Great. And then I will also put links to all that and then a way to pre-order the book in the show notes, or this may come out actually after, but I'll make sure there are links to buy the books in all there. And then I sent you this. So you are aware. I, I don't, I mean, I like to surprise people, but not everybody likes surprises. So I always give people a heads up on this. So our last question is a little bit of a game of chance and I'm going to roll, um, a die. And depending on what I roll, I'll ask you another question and a couple follow-ups um, about one of these topics, death, sex, religion, politics, or money, all those good things we're told not to talk about in polite company. Or if I roll a six, you'll get to pick which one you'd like. Sweet. One, death. <gasps> yeah. Okay, cool. All right. That was my number two choice and what I wanted to talk about. That's great. Oh, after we talk about, you know, the dark Abramovs and their necromancy. <laughs> um, so if you were in the middle of writing a series and sadly died, because it would be sad, of course, um, be sad. would you want someone to finish the series or do those characters go to the grave with you? Oh, I would definitely want someone to finish the series. I hate nothing more than when one of my series gets interrupted by someone dying sadly. So I absolutely think like those characters exist beyond me. Uh, they're not mine anymore. As soon as they're on the page and they exist um, in other people's head canons, I mm-hmm. think that they are up for grabs and I would absolutely, it would be an honor actually. I can't know a better legacy and a tribute to <laughs> after having died sadly than someone else finishing my series. So 1000% I would want, I would want yeah. them to carry on for me. Is there one, is there a series that you feel that you wish someone had done that with? Mm, I'm trying to know that there is, I can't think of one now, um, but I know that there's been series where I was like, oh, that really needed more installments. And the reason that didn't happen was because the author died. I can't think of one now, but I will think on it and get back to you. Cause I know that I have a couple <laughs> that I've thought about in the past. I just can't think of them now. Yeah. I was thinking like that. I know Neil Gaiman and Ian Colfer both wrote some stuff for, um, Douglas Adams series. Mm-hmm. And initially I kind of didn't go there 
Like I, I was just like, I don't know if I want to read these or not. And then I read them and they were lovely. I mean, it was obviously not Douglas Adams writing, yeah, but I think they were lovely tributes to his, his characters and the world, you know, kind of just frenetic world that he creates in books. But, um, no, I, I agree. I think for the most part, I think once those characters leave us and go out into the world, they, you know, they don't belong to us anymore. You know, I just thought today someone, they actually didn't tag me. It just was the hashtag uh, of one of my, it was either Lana Harper books or Payback's a Witch. And it was um, how to make uh, Talia Avramov. And they were combining Yennefer Vangenberg with Martha Stewart <laughs> to make Talia. And I was like, this is flawless. I love it. You're I, that is that is pretty perfect, actually. Yeah, That's a they great description. Did, like, they did like a star chart they were like here's she's like uh, she was like mars and scorpio and something else in venus and i was like this is genius i Mm -hmm. am so glad that someone did this because i love everything about it but yeah i mean they don't belong i wouldn't have said that but once i saw someone else say it i was like you're right like that's it's true yeah well even martha's domestic goddess has a little archness to it like so it's perfect yeah she is she's definitely got like the spice and the salt and arch is the perfect word for both her and Talia so I I totally agree yeah I love it yeah and I just you know the idea that like you said like with those kind of things and you know fan art and all the stuff that happens once those characters it's just interesting to see how they populate other people's imaginations I love it well, excellent. Well, Lana, thank you so much for being on the show. This has been lovely. And I cannot wait for From Bad to Curse to come out because I can't wait to read it. I've already got it pre-ordered. Yay. And um, I just wish you all the best of luck and um, another New York Times bestseller and a series. I'm going to wish that for you. Fingers crossed. Thank you so much. This has been wonderful. Uh, thank you so much for having me and for for taking the time to chat. Um, And I'm also excited about all those things. So like may the good vibes happen there. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thanks again. Thank you. Witch Lit is a production of Thousand Volt Press and is edited by Kaifel Agostini, who also designed our logo. Our music is Cosmic Glow by Andrew K. End, licensed from Pixabay. You can find transcripts and all our previous episodes at witchlitpod.com and follow us on Instagram and Twitter at witchlitpod. If you enjoyed this episode, please follow or subscribe and consider giving us a rating or review wherever you listen to podcasts. It helps other witches find the show. Thanks for listening and for reading Witchy. Witchy.